Radio Influence. Podcasting redefined. Hey gang, welcome to another episode of Real Animals Podcast presented by my good friends at Contender Boats. Remember, if you're looking for a custom one-of-a-kind fishing experience, look no further than my good friends at Contender Boats. You can build that boat exactly the way you want it. This week, I am going to be doing the podcast with my good friend, Captain Rick Gross, uh, one of the legendary West Coast Charter Captains. Been doing it for over 30 years now, doing it at a very high level, and uh, it's going to be a really, really good one. Been looking forward to getting this podcast in the book, and uh, hope you guys enjoy it as much as I'm going to enjoy doing it. Joining me here today on the Real Animals Podcast, my good friend, Captain Rick Gross from Fishy Business. How are you, my friend? I'm doing good. Good. Doing good. It's good to have you, buddy. Good to hear your voice today. Uh, Looking forward to this very much. Uh, You were a guy on my list when I started doing podcasts of somebody that I I was looking forward to being able to spend a little time with and kind of chit-chat with, Um, you know, doing some homework leading into this. So you've been in Bradenton since 1974, correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. okay. And what brought you to Bradenton originally, Rick? Well, my dad. I mean, okay. I, I was I was 13 when we came to Bradenton. Okay. So the family but, just uh, family moved there, and that's how you ended up in beautiful Bradenton, Florida. Yes. Yeah. I was originally from Tampa, um, but my dad was with a, the company he was with. They had a lot of moving to do, and we moved my whole elementary uh, years, and then I went. I started high school here at Manatee High in '74. I got gotcha. you. So what? Uh, I mean, what what drew you to the salt water? I mean, it, it, was it just something that you and your you and your dad did? Was it something that you just because Bradenton's <laughs> there on the water? I mean, looking for a place to go get in trouble or what? Uh, well, you know, my unfortunately, my dad is is not a fisherman. Okay. Um, my dad was an insurance man. Um, I have uncles and stuff that were, that were fishermen in freshwater and stuff like that. And, and I just got hooked on fishing. You know, I think I told you at one time, and I think this is the Gatewood, uh, gateway drug to fishing a lot is bluegill, uh, <laughs> freshwater. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. You get hooked on it and you can't get rid of it. And, um, the, the first day that I came here, uh, actually, took my bike off the moving truck, grabbed my fishing pole, and I rode my bike down Manatee Avenue to the causeway to go fishing. That's cool. Had no clue what I was doing, but I was going fishing. <laughs> right. That's cool, um, though. And I, I mean, I, 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 I still remember getting stopped by the sheriff, <laughs> and he says, aren't you supposed to be in school? And I said, no, I finished school. I said, we just moved here. <laughs> I said, okay. That's cool. That's great. Yeah. That's a good piece. That's a good piece. So obviously um, the fishing was in your blood a little bit. Did you did you start guiding, you know, real young? Did you go off and do something else and then just get drawn into the fishing business? How did How did Rick Gross become Captain Rick Gross? Well, I can I can honestly tell you that before we moved here, and most of my almost all my fishing was uh, freshwater. 
Okay. And I was I was drawn into uh, the bass fishing. You know, when they they had bass originally, and they used to uh, you would be a member of bass, and they would send you tackle and right. you know I read everything about the bass world, and I was drawn into the bass fishing thing originally. And when we actually moved here, my Dad had some friends from Tampa that was also in the insurance thing. That back in the day, uh, one of the one of his friends uh, had lost. Unfortunately, you know, and this is the story. But unfortunately, she lost her husband, and her family. We were real close with her family, but she lived here. You know, and you talk about Polk County, and you talk about Lakeland, you talk about all those lakes stuff like that that are all over there and 54 lakes or something in Polk County I think okay well this kind of goes back to that whole thing she had access to all these lakes and I spent a summer one time going to these lakes and we would go to somebody's place and that she knew and they all had like these little aluminum john boats and skiffs and stuff like that that had like a 9.9 kicker on and they would just they didn't know me from adam but i was there and they would say just take it out and i mean you know basically i don't know if you ever did this as a kid but you started up like a lawnmower and you just turn the throttle and you know you go out in the lake and (laughs) fish the pond and and i fished for bass and bluegill and did that that whole summer and um, was around all these different lakes and stuff here. And I was just as a kid in a candy shop. <laughs> and and going down to the saltwater part of it, I, some reason or another, started getting hooked up on the snook fishing part of it. And I tried, I didn't have anybody actually telling me how to do it. I did it through trial and error. And um, I lost, I don't know how many snook as a kid for a swivel breaking <laughs> Uh, hook pulling, uh, line breaking, you know, it, it seemed like every time I hooked a decent snook, it would break off. You right. know, I, I wouldn't get it. And it, I, I think it was like two years <laughs> before I finally got a snook. And I mean, when I came down here, I was 13, right? you know, and, and started doing that whole spiel. And, you know, it, I don't know if people remember Eckerd drugs. And I mean, Ben could tell you all this, Captain Ben could tell you all this, right, right, right. But I, you know, Eckerd Drugs is where you bought your tackle. Right. And we used to have, it's unbelievable, we don't have it as much anymore, but we used to have a bait shop or somebody selling tackle on just about every so many blocks. Right. Uh, especially downtown Bradenton. We had uh, Hawkers, we had Turners, we had Jet Bait across the Green Bridge. And that's where I cut my teeth. Uh, was fishing a lot on the green bridge and, and especially like Ben will tell you the stories we fished at night. I fished all night long. <laughs> I mean, I'd be just totally bleary eyed. Right. And we thought as kids that we had it down pat on snook when we figured out how to use jumbo shrimp and just let the shrimp go down in the lights and work the shadows and all that kind of stuff on snook. And we thought we had it made. And I remember Ben and I was down there one night. And these guys came up there with cane poles walking out on the bridge <laughs> I was like, we kind of laughed at them. I don't know how long it was between them walking out there and walking back, but they were walking back with three of the biggest snook I'd ever seen in my life. <laughs> right. And they had two over their shoulder. The one guy was carrying them over his shoulder. The other guy was dragging. He had the poles. I found out later that they were Calcutta poles. 
and they did the swishing technique and that's going back. We were, and we're I'm talking in the seventies right? and that just lit me up on that whole thing. And I just ended up being a snook nut and <laughs> I didn't know about catching snook in the springtime. I used to fish at night on the bridges in the fall, right. September, October, November. When they push back and then, the rivers. And then learned how to fish them with plugs and stuff like that. And um, then I started learning about the tides. And, you know, that's how I learned. That's how I cut my teeth. And once I got caught up with snook bass, you know, I still have a, a place in my heart for bass. But they took a second. They were second fiddle after I started catching snook. <laughs> Well, and I, I think it's important to note for uh, the listeners that, you know, you've re- referenced Captain Ben a couple times now. He's Rick is referencing Captain Ben Marshall, who is a, a very near and dear friend of mine, one of my closest friends, actually, a guy that I deer hunt with and have become good buddies with. And it just so happens that Ben and Rick spent a lot of time, you guys spent a lot of time together as kids, right? Yeah, as kids in high school. I mean, it was it was crazy stuff that we did as kids and, and heard, that type of stuff. I've heard then, some of the stories that we probably shouldn't tell on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got away with a lot of stuff back then, more than you do now. <laughs> right. But, it, you know, it, the other thing, what was funny is I didn't see Ben. I lost track of him after high school for a long time. And then I had gotten in with an outdoor writer here in Bradenton, which was Jerry Hill, that did the Braden and Harold. He ended up being kind of like my mentor as far as what he wrote. I mean, I, I used to take in Florida sportsmen, outdoor life, field and stream. I would get in trouble in high school because I was reading that instead of doing whatever I was supposed to be doing in class. And I still remember, I wish I could have told the one guy, the English teacher at the time, he says, where do you think this is going to take you? (laughs) See, most, (laughs) most high school, most high school boys get in trouble for reading playboy. You get in trouble yeah. for reading Florida Sportsman. <laughs> that's uh, awesome. Well, that's what that's what I did. I mean, I, I have to admit it. That's I was just ate up with that. Yeah, and that's good though. That's... We lost track of each other, and then I still don't know for sure because I've never really sat down with Ben and asked him everything. But we lost track of each other probably for twenty years. Oh wow! At high school, I mean, it was a while, and I had since then had built up my my business and built it up. And we had a thing here that Jerry put on through the Brayden Herald, which was called the Florida fishing college. Right. And they did it at our civic center here. Yeah. And, um, I was up to do a talk and my dad said, comes up to me and, you know, I had a booth out front, you know, where you're trying to endorse your business and everything else. But I would work in the booth and my dad comes out and he says, you know, Ben's out front. I said, what? He says, Ben's out front. Ben was hawking tackle for some company out front. Right. And I went and touched base with him and talked with him. And then I had to go up on the stage and, and do my thing that I had on the seminar for the stage. And then Ben contacted me after that. Oh, and nice. it was, we started talking to each other. And then, you know, Ben does it um, part time. Right. But yep. he had some good contacts. Sure. And he sent me some contacts that I ended up doing well with and, you know, it got back to him. And then we ended up getting more in contact with each other. And I wish, I wish we spent more time. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I wish we had never lost all that time in between, you know, since then he, 
he got in good friends with uh, Captain Rooster Curry. So yeah, um, I missed out on a lot of that. Which who knows, you know, who know, you know, where your life is going to take you and all that kind of stuff. But that was nice to be able to get back with him and and spend time with him. And then you know how we're ate up with spec fishing and stuff. So. <laughs> yes, you two are, no doubt about <laughs> it. So you started, you you opened your guide business then in 1986, Fishy Business LLC, right? Well, originally we had it under Grosses Incorporated because we had to incorporate, but okay. my boat has always been named Fishy Business. Oh, okay. I got you. I got you. I, I mean, I think that know, was one, that's then, probably one of the coolest charter fishing business names that I've ever seen. <laughs> and I've been guiding now. I've been guiding, you know, to almost 20 years. So it'll be 20 years next. It'll be 19 years this July. So. 20 years next year. And that is by far, I still think one of the coolest charter business names I've seen. Fishy <laughs> business. That's perfect. Name. I don't know. I just don't know where I came up with that, but I'm glad I did when I did. <laughs> right. It's pretty cool. I remember that and I, it probably might be the very first time that I ever saw you at the Skyway bridge. Cause you had fishy business right on the side of your boat. And I was like, yeah, Damn, that's a cool name, bro. I don't know who that cat is, man, but he must be cool because that's a cool name for a Oh boy. Yeah, that's a cool oh, name boy. for a boat. The old twenty three the twenty three Dorado. Let me uh let me ask you some questions, Rick. So you've been doing this a long time and, and you're one of my favorite people in the industry. You know, I always call on the radio show, great contributions. You and I have become very good friends, which I consider a blessing for me uh, in this business with all your knowledge. We filmed some shows together, had a lot of fun doing that. Where's where's fishing today, in your opinion, versus where fishing was in 1986? Uh, <laughs> it has changed so much, and it has gone through so many, uh, so many things between you know the population growing, the way the business has changed, the the way. I mean, originally, I was partners with another guide at one point because you know when you're doing it part-time and you're trying to get in the business um you know you you can't just jump in the business you know back at least back then i don't know maybe now you can a little bit more but you can't just jump in the business and all of a sudden you're a guide right um uh you have to make a name for yourself you have to work into that type of thing and uh we had a in-column ad and i think it was under when we had done that, we had it as Bradenton backcountry fishing and we had an in-column ad in yellow pages, um, and did that as far as my business was concerned. Right. But I don't know if people realize, you know, we're talking about a closure now with different closures that we got now. At one point, Redfish was closed entirely. Oh, really? Um, back in the day before it was CCA, it was Florida Conservation Association. Right. FCA, right. Yep. And i I don't know if my timing is right. I want to say about 87, 88, somewhere in there. The commercial fishing industry, um, you know, I, I try, I, over the years I have become more of a, into the commercial part of it than I was. And, you know, it, it's a long, long story because it's gone over 30 something years. But at the time, uh, the Persane industry basically wiped out our kingfish off the keys. Um, and then 
they used spotter planes and everything. They used a pursane, and then they would just take it. They didn't think that they could do it. They thought there were so many kingfish. You know, that was back in our back in our day in the 70s and 80s and stuff like that. That's how we treated the fishery. Right. It was going to be an endless supply of fish. Well, they used planes. They spot the kings, and then they take them. They take them in with a big, huge pursane. They literally sunk a couple boats because they got so greedy. And that technology, um, you know, they tell me about kingfishing in the 70s. I didn't get to kingfish in the 70s. I was a young kid at the time. I really didn't get to really start kingfishing until the early 90s when I went to the first privateer. I had a 22 privateer. Well, as soon as I got that bigger boat with a bigger motor, yeah, well, I was going to start heading west and, you know, go out and do some of that fishing that, you know, all my other fishing was always inshore. I had a 17-foot aquasport when I started, and I fished nothing but inshore in the bay and Terracia, and I think I only had 40 feet of rope. I mean, <laughs> right. if I went too far out, I couldn't reach bottom with my anchor. <laughs> right. Um, but... uh they use that same technology on the redfish and the whole blackening craze to this day, I can be wrong and I'll probably get crucified this from some of my commercial guys, but the whole blackening thing back in the day, I think was brought about to sell a fish that we weren't even utilizing at the time, which was the breeder redfish. I've had, I've had conversations with Rhett Morris. Uh, Red is a charter captain down there in Boca Grande, fishes out of Burnt Store area. Um, I've done a couple shows with him, really a, a fishy guy, very similar to you in, you know, fished here as a kid, you know, dabbles in the commercial thing a little bit. So really a versatile guy, fishes a lot, knows a lot about the fishery. And he was telling me when I was down there fishing with him, and I've had him on the radio show before, he was telling me that the redfish used to be a nuisance fish. Like they didn't want to catch them. He said and there were so many of them that the anglers were irritated by their existence. Well, we took redfish for granted. I can tell you that at one point in time, we took redfish for granted. And um, But when this happened, you know, I, I tend to go around in circles. But when, when this happened, um, they used the technology that they were using on the kingfish. And the anglers, the community, went up in arms over it. And they made a run on Tallahassee from, you know, FCA was behind it. And they made a run on Tallahassee and were crying to them at Tallahassee to shut the fishery down, to shut red fishing down, that just shut it down and figure out how this is going to affect the fishery. Right. Because... They were using the same technology that wiped out the kingfish. And we didn't want, you know, if you take all the broodfish, this is kind of like what we're up against now is the broodfish. And, you know, this is, this is a, this red tide, it was just an unusual event. And it takes a lot of things to come together to cause it. Right. Um, but it, it, hopefully it won't happen again. I, you know, we've had that whole talk with that. But this is why they closed redfish at that point. They made a run on Tallahassee and said, just close it. Because used to, you could keep, I mean, typically like back in the day for trout and for grouper, 12 inches, how many do you want to clean? Right. I mean, that's, right. I'm, and you know, and I'm talking back in the early 80s. Right. And I guarantee you when you talk to Richard Seward, he can tell you some other stories. Right. <laughs> but, 
35. But so this like, is this is basically, you know, 35 years ago. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Well, and there was a closure. They they closed it completely down. They made the fishery. It was and black and red fish. It was back when I don't know if you remember the yuppie thing. It was a yuppie thing. Um, uh, the, black the, and red fish. The yuppies want all the yuppies were into the black and red fish. I thought the black and red fish thing started in Louisiana. It probably did. It, it may have, right. but they they were using that technology, and I I don't. I do. I think I remember the guy, but I hate to just sit out there and, and name names and everything else now. Um, uh, you know, if we, if you message me or something like that, and we were talking between ourselves, I probably could tell you exactly who it was, but I'm not going to do that now. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Um, we, don't, we don't. We don't need to get anybody in trouble. It's an interesting. Well, it was, it's interesting though that you know, to me, it seems like when when I bring that question up to to guys you know, like yourself that have been fishing, you know, here on the West coast of Florida for many, many moons. It, it, it seems to be that the fishery is just, it's just so much different. And again, you touched on the pressure, you touched on, you know, some of the stuff we've done to it ourselves, you know, some of it that mother nature's done. We've had freezes and we've had red tides, which, you know, I know some of the red tide issues are our fault, but some of it, you know, red tide's been around for hundreds of years. So some of that is, is mother nature as well. So I think well, that whole thing with the red tide, it originates out in the Gulf. Right. Exactly. And then we had this little thing called Irma. Yeah, and you know what it did to me between me and my wife and sure. and uh, her working the way she did it about literally drove me crazy. Sure, um, it absolutely tore me apart. Um, but we had that hurricane which stirs up the Gulf, which stirs it up out in the shelf, and then we've had this south persistent southwest pattern, which I don't know if maybe that's what's changing. You know, whatever, we don't have any control over that, but that's what has happened. Right. And then it pushed it in and held it in. And then we had the whole thing with, you know, the nutrient situation with all the other stuff that's happening with we our had, population. We had, and a very, we had a very yeah. rainy May, very rainy, yeah. more rainy than normal. And that flushes very all, hot, you hot bet. summer. That flushes all, summer flushes all the nutrients out into the Gulf. And where it met up with the red tide, and it was just a perfect storm with Irma, with the west winds, southwest winds. I mean, everything was just a perfect storm. And hopefully, we don't. Hopefully, we don't I'm, see that storm again. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it really. Uh, I'm looking forward to tarpon, but it really messes up the whole tarpon thing too. Oh, it really messes it. The up. tarpon fishing hasn't. I don't think the tarpon fishing, at least here in Tampa, the last two or three years, has been great. And I think a lot of that has to do with most of our best tarpon fishing happens around your new and your full moon because that's the reason the tarpon are there for the the big flush of the crabs that pour out of these bays on those big moon tides around the new and full moon. And we've yeah. had west winds on almost every single hill tide, which is what we call those tides around the new and the full moon. We've had... We've had west winds. When you get heavy west winds, tarpon get nervous on the beach. The, the beach gets dirty. They can't see their enemies, which we now have more sharks than we've ever had, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, we they do. Can't, they can't see their enemies, and they put their nose into that wind, and they go offshore. 
I mean, it's just exactly. what, it's just what they do. I mean, they've done it. You know, I spent ten years in Boca Grande. You get a lot of west wind; those fish will not put up with it. They put their nose into it and they go offshore. And that's the same problem we've had here the last couple of years. It's actually changed the way I book my tarpon trips. You know, I always used to book up my hill tides first because those were always, you know, some of the best dates. Well, now the way it's been the last three years, I'm not sure those are the best dates anymore. I mean, if we're going to stay in this pattern, when we come onto those moon phases for whatever that is doing to the earth, it, it, you know, it seems to be picking up that west wind and that's just, that's just horrible for our tarpon fishing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, the other thing too, that has, has changed, you know, we talk about pressure and everything else, but one of the things that we strive for is every time they put in a parking lot, every time they put in a mall, every time they do anything. We had retention ponds. We didn't used to always have that type of stuff, which, you know, back in the day, we lost a lot of seagrasses and stuff. And then it was building itself back up. I, what comes to mind with me is like out off of Anna Maria, out towards the northern part of Anna Maria, when you drop off the bulkhead out the very northern tip of Anna Maria out there, there's grass out there that wasn't there back right. when I was a kid. Right. There was a couple patches of grass out there. And then after this hurricane, I'm sure it has changed a lot of shorelines, a lot of areas. I literally have not gone down into Sarasota Bay. I think I tried it once like last October, right. um, but have not gone down into Sarasota Bay since like last October. And from what I understand, there's a lot of grass and stuff that's just gone. Right. That was in Sarasota Bay. Sure. I am hearing a rumor here and there that, you know, from a few guys that's saying that things are starting to come back down there. But until I go down there and verify it, it's just a rumor. Right. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Well, and I think that's what you get when you have those big, you know, we have those big storms. Uh, you, you get shoreline change. You get flats, grass flats that change because the, the winds and the tides and everything are so violent. Um, I think you touched on something really interesting, and I've talked about this on the uh, both the Saturday morning radio show on 970 WFLA and the Sunday morning show on 95.3 WDAE. And the the retention pond thing, I think that issue is huge. And here's why it's such a big deal. Because if you look at the areas where there's money in all your big metropolitan areas along the coast, the west coast of Florida, take South Tampa, for exa- for example. All of South Tampa runs one direction. There are no retention ponds because they put a house or a restaurant on every single inch of it. There are no retention ponds in South Tampa. You know where all that water goes? All the rainwater that has all that nutrients in it from all the, you know, uh, fertilizer and pesticides and all that stuff that goes on all them lawns. It all runs straight to Bayshore Boulevard and right into Tampa Bay. Then it goes out into the Gulf. I think we have to. If you, we have to rethink what we what we have thought about yards and I agree. And, and if you, you know, if you look, you bet. If you look at you look at Naples, you look at uh, Fort Myers, all those areas where you have all those big fancy homes with those beautiful yards. That's all the stuff that's on the water. Apollo Beach, uh, Venice, Inglewood, all that stuff is on the water. And it's all old. It's all been there a long time. We didn't do retention ponds. Now, if they put in a brand new neighborhood, every brand new neighborhood has a retention pond in it to, yeah. to, to, to alleviate some of that, you know, so at least yeah. that stuff's got to dump out into the retention pond and 
kill the grass and weeds in there before it gets into our estuary. So, well, but that, know, I, but that I, to I, me, that to me, Rick, makes it a, a very big problem because you and I both know that they're not going to fix that. Those areas with all that money, they're not going to go, well, you know what? We'll give up our house. Let's put a retention pond here. <laughs> I mean, you know. Oh, well, yeah. Well, that, that's probably home. just going to be. But they could, they could, instead of planting a yard with zero, grass. Zero scape it. They could do more zero scaping and more Florida friendly. And, and what's to say that we can't make that something that, okay, you want this beautiful place on the water, but you can't have a yard. You right. can have, you know, maybe make it so like if you're more like on the beach. Right. Than having some beautiful yard that you have to maintain. Why couldn't you sell that to people? I mean, I'm sure the sod industry would be going through the roof. But, (laughs) uh, you know, on Florida, on the coast, let's just say it's on the coast. You can't do it on the coast in an estuary system. Right. You know, maybe change that. I think it's a great idea. I don't know if we could ever get it implemented. Well, I know. There's some things that you're just going to be beating yourself up over (laughs) trying to figure stuff out and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. do feel that the fishery, to my surprise, has held up held up to everything that we've had go on. Right. Um, you know, this was a tragic thing that we had going, just like when we had a freeze in 2010, uh, as far as just for the snook. Um, you know, Captain Mill used to always say there's always a silver lining behind whatever it is. He kind of treated red tide like a forest fire, that it's a natural thing, and that, you know, afterwards things come back. I will say that, like, shrimp and crabs do extremely well after red tide. Sure. Uh, blue crabs and stuff like that. Um, uh, it seems like we'll have, they should have a great crabbing, shrimping uh, run. Uh, coming up on those big hill tides when you get the later part of this month and get on into June. I know when we did have a bad red tide, I'm not sure what year it was. It wasn't that awful long ago we had a bad red tide. Out here on Anna Maria, on these grass flats, when it got to be evening on a hard outgoing tide, it looked like a little city out there because people were out there with headlamps and lanterns (laughs) just scooping up shrimp and crabs. Right, right. So, you know, there's there's always a silver lining, I think, behind all of it. Mother um, Nature, Mother I'm Nature, yeah, Mother Nature knows how to, you know, recover she herself. She does. She works really hard at it, and she's been good at it. I think the snook fishing is tremendous right now, um, it, it, as far as numbers go. Um, at least along the south shore of Tampa Bay. Um, I, I, I haven't fished much Miguel Bay, Terracia, the areas that you fish a lot. I well, know. that that has been there's been. You know, a very good fishery there that, you know, I think, I think you mentioned something, uh, with, uh, Captain Ryan Rickard about fish having red lips. Yeah. Yeah. And that is, that is very true. It is. Right. Um, so, you know, it's a good thing that snook do, uh, do make a very good catch and release fish. The mortality rate on them is very small. There's like 2%, right? something like that. Where the thing with trout that worries me a little bit with trout is uh, the handling of trout, um, you know, people catching and releasing trout um, and handling them. Uh, they are, they're a lot more delicate than a snook or a redfish. So that part of it, I don't know if that pertains well to it. I think, you know, it, 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 I've seen a lot on Facebook and they talk about, okay, what are the snapper thinking? What are the... <laughs> 
what are the flounder thinking? Oh crap! They're gonna come after me. <laughs> yes, we are. If they want, know. if they want to eat fish, that'll be uh, that'll be that'll be where we're headed. There's no doubt about it. So, let me ask you, just uh, you know, just kind of as a as a final piece here. I mean, obviously, it just came down here uh, last week. Uh, snook, redfish, and speckled trout uh, going to be closed for a full year. Uh, from May 11th, I think, all the way until the following May 11th, um, it's in 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 portions of the west coast of Florida, and most of the west coast of Florida, anyway. Uh, to the north, I guess they're still going to leave it open. But where where are you with that, Rick? Was it something you thought was necessary? Did did they overstep it, or you know, did you think it was a good move? I don't, you know, I don't think they overstepped it. Um, I really think it was something that had to be done. Um, the fishery is, you know, he, he, what some of the guys are having a problem with is then these guys, you know, the guides are posting how great the fishing is. The thing that I don't think that the people that are saying that understand is we're trying to have a brood stock of fish to fill in where the fishery really got hurt. And I know that we've had this discussion before that I feel like, that and and obviously you saw that over there at St. Pete, but I I feel like that these fish when we have red tide events, if they can, they move away from the bad water. I mean, there to me, there's no doubt that that happens for sure. And I think maybe a lot of these fish are fish that were to the south of us, especially snook um, that moved up this way. Um, you know, we had a last fall, the red fishing was really good. There is still some good red fishing around, you know, in our area here. I think the red fishing, I don't know, I think a pressure thing on red fish, they just don't deal well with pressure. Snook, I think, can handle a lot more pressure than redfish can. And redfish, I've used my push pole and my electric motor a whole lot more than I use it for when I'm snook fishing. Right. If I know that there's an area that there's redfish and they tend to be in real shallow water, that's why I still have a push pole on my boat. Right. I will ease up into an area where I'm thinking there's redfish and pole a quarter mile to get in where there's redfish. But the pressure that the redfish get, the amount of pressure, they feel that. And I, I really believe that where there were areas that I fished for weeks, now you get days. When a school of fish comes in, when people find out that they're there, the social media thing has, you know, blown that all up. It just goes totally nuts where, you know, as guides, you know, we want to share with our clients. You want to share, you know, with maybe some of your friends. But nowadays, all of a sudden, instead of being able to fish a school for three weeks, you get three days. Right. <laughs> right. We had, I had a school uh, that showed up over at Fort DeSoto. I think we had them for a day. They were there for a day. Yeah. Like we caught me and uh, another charter captain buddy of mine were on them one day. They weren't there the day before that. They showed up. We caught about 20. Each boat caught about 20, mixed in with some snook and some big trout. And the next day they were gone. <laughs> I'm like, wow, we had them for yeah. a day. We had them for a day. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, just kind exactly. of, yeah, it's just kind of the way it is. And I will tell you that, you know, because I'm so blessed with the TV show and all that, being able to fish, you know, Crystal River, Cedar Key, Steena Hatchie, um, every year, 
the fishing up that way on the redfish side is is the best I've ever seen it. Uh, and a lot of the guys that I fish up with, fish with those in those areas, they said the same thing, that the red fishing to the north of us is the best they've ever seen it. Um, and I think that's all due in part to our water issue. I really do. I think, yeah, got I think the estuary the up there, the estuary up there speaks volumes for it. Sure. Uh, I think that, I think Ben touched a little on it in your show this past week about the salinity plants that they have in the bay, mm-hmm. that that works like someplace in the Bahamas or, you know, on it where there's deep water, Right. that that works. But to have that in Tampa Bay may not be the best, you know, we don't know for sure, but it may not be the best thing in the world. I don't know. I'm not a scientist by any means or anything. I'm just looking at the fishery and trying to take it all in and put the puzzle together. So Right. Well, you do uh, it You do it as well as anybody uh, that I know on the west coast of Florida. Captain Rick Gross, we appreciate you joining me today very much. Uh, guiding here for 33 years. Anybody wanting to get a trip with Captain Rick Gross, uh, you can give him a, ball, a phone call, 941-730-5148. You can always call me toll-free at 1-866-GAMEFISH. I can get you in touch with Captain Rick. Rick, I really uh, appreciate your friendship, getting to know you in the industry. You're somebody that I, I respect and look up to, and uh, I appreciate you giving me a little time today joining me here on the podcast. Hey, Mike, anytime I can do anything, you have been a tremendous asset to our whole area for all the anglers and I think in the state um, you're an ambassador for the fisheries and everything else and you say what you feel so sometimes I mean, that gets I, me in trouble <laughs> yeah I know I understand I, I believe me I understand I get in trouble sometimes too for things <laughs> I was like whoops yeah did that come out of my mouth dog on uh-huh. it. it inside voice inside voice <laughs> Rick Gross yeah. we appreciate you my friend enjoy the rest of your day and thank you so much for joining us here on Real Animals Podcast hey thanks for having me Mike big thank you out to Captain Rick Gross there for joining me on this week's episode of the Real Animals Podcast presented by Contender Boats uh, just an incredible guy Captain Rick Gross uh, so much passion for the uh, industry hope you guys enjoyed that I definitely did remember the Real Animals Podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and ritampabay.com. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and reach out to me on my social media outlets if you'd like to, uh, Facebook slash Real Animals, and at Real Animals TV on the Instagram. If there's somebody you'd like to have me do a podcast with, I'm definitely open to some ideas. Uh, I've got some good people lined up here uh, coming at us here in the near future, so Make sure you stay tuned in. Appreciate you guys for listening. Tight lines. Have a great week. This is an In the Trenches with Ian Beckles quick fix on Radio Influence. After the Super Bowl year, this has been a putrid, tough-to-watch football team. And a lot of it has to do with attitude. Now, when we were here with Tony Dungy, uh, and John Gruden had, was blessed to adopt attitude, and we talk about attitude, I can start breaking down players, uh, player by player, but I don't think it's necessary. And it's not. I'm not only talking about Warren Sapps, I'm not only talking about... Keyshawn Johnsons and Derek Brooks. And that's the, that's the nucleus of the team. Those are the stars. I'm just talking about in general. Brad Johnson played with attitude. Okay. 
Our tight ends back then played with attitude. Our line played with attitude. Our D-line brought hats and was was terrifying, okay? John Lynch was back there decapitating people. Rondé Barber with the ball was hitting him in his chest and he was running for touchdowns. Same with Derek Brooks, okay? Sheldon Quarles was an intelligent football player. But altogether, it was attitude. Mike Allstott ran with attitude. So did Warwick Dunn. And... If I said to you, where is the attitude on this Buccaneer football team the last 10 years, um, I think you have a problem coming up with many names. And the, te- the names that you come up with are not attitude players. They're just not. They don't make enough plays. In the Trenches with Ian Beckles can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com. Thanks.